it's not even possible to imagine what we'll be doing in 10 years because we are so adept at responding to a changing environment. If I were to tell you, in 10 years, we'll be using X technology to deliver Y curriculum that's so short-sighted and doesn't embody the innovation that Pencils of Promise is built on. Hello, friends. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm so incredibly glad you're here. Thank you for showing up. On this show, I talk with people living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. If you love this show, hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. Now, before I introduce my guest today, this past weekend was Mother's Day, as most of you know. So I wanted to say a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Motherhood is a truly incredible thing, and I'm so grateful for my wife and partner, my mom, and all of y'all. I do want to add, however, that Mother's Day is not a happy time for so many. It's painful. It hurts. So if you've lost a mother by death or estrangement, if you've lost a child, if you can't have a child but want one, if you're raising a child or children on your own, if you've had to give up a child, if this time is painful for you in any way, I want you to know that I see you, I love you, and I'm thinking about you as well during this Mother's Day season. I mean it. I love each and every one of you. I'm grateful for what you bring to the world. Okay, my guest today is a fascinating and wise human. Her name is Leslie Engel Young. Leslie, like me, always wanted to do more and see more. She's an explorer, an adventurer at heart. This curiosity led her to join Pencils of Promise in the early days, really early days. She was employee number two or three. Pencils of Promise is a fantastic organization that I've loved for years. Pop builds schools and provides quality educational programming to increase literacy rates in Ghana, Guatemala, Laos, and Nicaragua. Leslie joined as the country director in Laos, but then became the director of impact, then the chief impact officer, and now she leads the organization as the chief operating officer. I loved this conversation so much. It felt like I knew Leslie for a long time, even though we met for the first time on the call. Love her story, love her passion, love all that Leslie has done, and I know you will love this conversation as well. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Leslie Engel Young. Let's go. Leslie Engel Young, so great to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. So happy to be here. I am thrilled on a variety of levels to talk with you. One is I've just had uh, just wonderful experiences with Pencils of Promise thus far, yeah. both the organization and the people within the organization. So this is the first time you and I are meeting, but I've had just delightful experience so far with Pencils of Promise. So I'm excited to hear more about it from someone who has been there since yeah. the since the you know, pretty much the very beginning. It's you've, yeah. you've, you've been there a long time. So I'm so thrilled. How are, let's start with this. How are you doing? I mean, we're, uh, 13 months into a pandemic. You live in a city that was hit pretty damn hard. Um, 
how are you doing? How are you feeling as we begin? And I say begin because we are not out of the woods yet, even though half of America thinks we are. Mm-hmm. As we begin to, you know, exit this pandemic slowly but surely, how how are you doing? How are you feeling? I, you know, I'm I'm feeling really good and and very hopeful. I have a almost three year old daughter, and I think that having a small person in your house who is incredibly joyful was just something that made this last year so much easier. Um, I know, I know it's a hard time to parent and all things considered, but just at the end of the day, when things were really hard, you know, last March, last April, my husband wasn't living with us because he's an emergency room physician assistant. So things were just very scary. And then you have a really small person that's like, wow, it's raining outside. And you're like, you're right. It's raining. And that's cool. Cause we can jump in puddles and, and it's just really grounding. So having that through line has been very helpful. And then just feeling really hopeful as, as we start to just, you know, warm weather, just seeing more vaccinations, just feeling, feeling positive. I didn't know that about your family in terms of your husband being a frontline medical worker. So talk to me about that experience, because I have friends that were, that were frontline medical workers all over the U S but I've had a few in New York as well. And they told me that it was just, I mean, just a really hard time. Yeah. You, you mentioned not living together. There was that whole angle where, you know, they, you know, they're being quarantined and kept in a different place because of so much exposure, but also this is your partner. Uh, yeah. you're probably worried as hell all the time. Like, is something going to happen? Because there were lots of cases where these frontline medical workers didn't make it out. Right. Yeah. So how, how is that part of it? I'm sure just, there's still some trauma yeah. probably. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely wild. Um, he was, well, there's a reason he does his job and I do mine. He was very calm about it, right? When we were like, when I was, what you know, in my mind, very dramatically, I, I read a lot of dramatic fiction. So things got dramatized in my mind, right? I'm going outside with my daughter in a carrier at that point to give him a hug goodbye because he was going to be gone for, for you know, what we thought was maybe a couple of weeks, ended up being about six, eight weeks. Wow. And things were really scary. I mean, March in New York was very, very scary. And he's just like, you know, like, yeah, I'll see you guys soon. I'm like, I'm sorry. Are you not freaking out? <laughs> like you are someone that freaks out about traffic, like pandemics, traffic. Why are we like, okay. here? Right. Like, I guess that's why you work in an emergency department and I do not because you can stay calm in this moment and I cannot. Um, but I think he and all of his colleagues were just in that, not really thinking until you're out of the other end of it and now processing and realizing just how scary that was. And and how very real it was. And just to be in the center, to be in New York at that time was, was very heavy. Yeah. Did he ever get COVID or did he steer clear of that? Yeah, he did get it. And he actually didn't tell me. He told, I think he only told one person, our very closest friend, um, because he needed someone to know in case he got more ill. At that time, when you had COVID and you worked in the emergency department, you're still going to work as long as you could work because you just needed to. He didn't tell me. And, and, you know, when I did find out, I was like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank goodness you didn't tell sure, me. And I would right. have been war, you know, what can you do? It would have been so scary, but he was relatively asymptomatic. Um, so all in all, very, very fortunate. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, mm-hmm. it, what an intense, what an absolutely intense year. Yeah. Um, so here's what I'd love to do. There's so much to get to. I want to dive into both. I want to give equal, you know, I want to give lots of time to your story and sort of, you know, a lot of what I do is I want to, I want to figure out what makes you tick and why mm-hmm. you're doing the thing that you're doing. And a lot of that is we find a lot of that out in the story leading up to, you know, who you are today. So I want to dive into that here and then we'll get to, 
you know, pencils of promise stuff. I also want to, yeah, this, you know, unpack and celebrate all that is pencils of promise, but let's start with your story. So who is Leslie Engel young? You know, if I say, tell your story, go back as far as you want to, like, uh, what are the who, what, when, where's and why's of your story? Yeah. Um, well, as far back as I want, you know, I grew up in Oregon. I grew up in a small town in Oregon. I grew up to educators. I grew up growing up in schools. Um, both my parents were educators in really small rural schools. So my town was around 12,000 at the time, but then schools even outside of the town. So my dad was a first, second, third grade teacher slash principal at one point in time. So, you know, these really, really small schools. So my, Very. my world was really shaped in that, you know, and in, in spending time in those settings, um, time with educators, time just having school always be such an incredible focal point of our lives. Um, and then, you know, around very, very young, I also just discovered a love of travel. Um, probably even before my family did, I was really, I was the first person in my nuclear family to get a passport and was the first person that wanted to like, you know, go out and see the world. And I think that really shaped a lot of like kind of what was to come and what was to, to grow into, you know, what started as kind of a wanderlust and then wanted to be really experiencing the world in other ways. You mentioned that you were the first one of your family of your, you know, your, yeah, your community that wanted to venture out. Where did that come from? You mentioned a few minutes ago that you love, you know, sort of reading dramatic fiction. Did it come from love of reading or what was, what was it that really made you? Cause so many, so you're well-traveled, I'm well-traveled. And I wouldn't trade that experience for any amount of money or things in the world. Like my favorite thing about me is that I've traveled the world and spent time in so many different places. Like it has shaped me fundamentally, but many Americans, especially maybe, uh, you know, people growing up in rural Oregon, right. Don't get those experiences. So what was it that caused you to think that way and ultimately pull the trigger and go do that? I'm going to go down a rabbit hole, but I feel like that's maybe what this is for. Yes. Um, the, the most transformative experience that I sometimes kind of leave out because it just, it's just too weird is that I was a, a kind of amateur professional jump roper, um, and competed and that grew up doing that. So if you think about it, the way that most people can picture it is kind of like a mix between like gymnastics culture and like dance team culture, like very much like getting up early and practicing, going to practices in the morning and after school, this is like as an elementary school student competing on the weekend, you know, all that kind of stuff, traveling parents that would do all that moms that would like French braid your hair, all that kind of stuff. And being a child athlete, what came with that very kind of bizarrely through a turn of events was an opportunity to go to Ecuador when I was in the fifth grade. And that was, I, you know, I don't, I, I remember parts of the trip, obviously being in the fifth grade, I don't remember a ton of it. I do remember parts of it. But I think what I remember most is the retelling of it from my family and my dad telling the story of it never crossing my mind to be scary or to be like that I would miss them. There was like a, you know, wanting to be dramatic goodbye at the airport when you could like still walk people to the gate. And I was just like, see ya, like I'm getting on this airplane. Right. And so there's just something about it, but that very much started it. And that was just like experiencing that trip and that, that something that, you know, in a small town in Oregon and you go to Ecuador, it's a pretty big deal like to come back. That was like something that I got to teach my classmates about, like just totally different experiences and absolutely started the kind of bug of just wanting to be a part of, of other cultures and experience life outside of, of rural Oregon. 
first of all, I did not know that competitive jump roping was a thing. It's such a thing. <laughs> so I I know what I'm doing this evening for at least 20 minutes is oh I'm going to jump on YouTube and go watch some competitive jump roping. I mean, I, again, I can imagine what it, what it looks like because I've seen people, you know, in, in random videos, like yeah. jump rope really well. So I'm sure it looks something like that, but that's, that's amazing that that was a, a, a thing of yours. Um, so fifth grade, what is that? 10, 11 years old. Yeah. 10. And you went with, what was the group? What was, how big was the group of people? There's probably like 10 of us kids, around 10 of us kids. And then three or four adults. And we were actually meeting, uh, someone who was a, a coach of ours was studying abroad, studying abroad. I think she was teaching abroad there. Um, I don't know. I was 10. Right. So she felt like she was like this, right. she was probably in her early twenties, but, but I felt like she was much, much older. Um, so we got the opportunity to go through that. So yeah, we were just this group of, of girls from, from Oregon that got to go on this trip. And I, the distinct things that I remember are, are all very, um, like sensory. Like I have such a strong memory of rolling down the window in the van and buying sugar cane and like out of a plastic bag and then getting to like chew on the sugar cane in the back of this van and thinking like, this is the ultimate no parents. Like, do you know, they sell sugar on the side of the road. Yep. You get to eat it just in the car. <laughs> like it was the ultimate, just like I'm living my life large right now. So we, we have a, a, a similar path here in that my dad is Guatemalan. He came mm. to the U.S. when he was a kid, and we moved back uh, around. I was around ten years old. Okay, and we li lived in Guatemala for ten years, and so I think it's. I think there's something interesting and important about leaving your kind of safe surrounding mm -hmm. in those still formative younger years that you can never like undo. You can't unsee yeah. the things you see. You can't unlearn the things you're learning. And I, I think it changes almost, in other words, almost everybody I know, whether it was military kid or missionary kid or parents moved for work, whatever it was, mm -hmm. if you move into, you know, a different culture, different people language when you're younger, I can, I can pick you out of a crowd. Like I can, yeah. I, I can pick you out of a lineup because there's yeah. something just so different about how you live. I mean, it affects your value system, how you see the world, all that stuff. Um, and, and again, I would never change, you know, spending eight, 10 years in Guatemala, very pivotal years Yeah, that, that caused me to, to, uh, think and act and live, you know, completely differently. Okay. So that's fifth grade, go to Ecuador. Um, take me through the, how did you get out of Oregon? So, yeah. so teenage years, what were you thinking about in terms of like career? Um, yeah. How did you, and I, 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 I assume you went into teaching, right? Maybe I'm just thinking you're following a path from your parents yeah. as educators. W yeah. What, what was that like? It was more um, circuitous than that <laughs> to say, to put it, say I wasn't just wondering. Um, I left Oregon to go to school in Boston. I went to Emerson College. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, at that point in time, I think I, I wanted to do journalism. Then I ultimately was studied writing literature and publishing. I ended up transferring to University of San Francisco a couple of years after that for no other real reason than I learned that I really don't like that kind of cold and was just like, not, nah, that is not the lifestyle for me. Um, I'm now in New York, much better than Boston cold though. Um, moved to San Francisco, studied creative writing. I wanted to be a writer. That was my plan was to, you know, 
spend my life writing. And that's really how I ultimately ended up in Laos was by taking a break from that plan um, and applying to go to grad school and deciding why on earth would I go get an MFA when I have nothing to write about because I haven't done a whole lot yet. Interesting. Um, and then found a totally different path. Um, so why Emerson College? So I'm I'm just interested in in the the journey here. Like why all the way across the country in in Boston? Is that a is that a school known for its writing program, or what was the reason for going there in the first place, or just to get away? And it yeah. was like it was far away from what you had always known. It was probably that it was far away. Although I, it, it's when I say that it's interesting because I I also am very close to my family and friends in Oregon. So there was no like need to escape. I think there was a need to try something different and experience something different. And living in a city felt very different. Um, I don't, I don't have like a really great reason all in. I think I probably like did the research that I could and it had a writing program and then it was in a city and that's probably really all I was looking for, honestly. And so how did you end up in was your move to New York because of, I don't want to dive into the pencils of promise stuff yet, but was your move to New York because of pencils of promise? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately that was what, what brought me and my family here. Um, from San Francisco, that's where I ended up teaching for a little while. I taught preschool. Um, and that is ultimately what took me to Laos was kind of that decision to not go to grad school, to find out what I wanted to do. A moment when I was living in between San Francisco and Laos, I lived in Portland, Oregon. So to be kind of close to family, teaching preschool, calling my dad at the end of every day, mostly in tears. He was a, a first grade teacher. He's now a school administrator. Um, very quickly realizing that teaching that I was very good at it, but it did not bring me any joy. Mm. It brought me relief at the end of the day that the day was over and that everyone survived. Um, and then kind of dread that the whole day was going to start over again the next day. Um, and I was good at it. So that was kind of confusing. It was like, I, I know that I'm skilled at this and, I'm, and I like being with children. And I'm good with kids, but I need to find a different path that is maybe supporting that or something outside of that. Um, and so it was really a you know, 24 years old, what am I doing? What should I do? I know I'll buy a one-way ticket to Laos because that's what you do when you're unsure and you have the the privilege and the ability to do that. Um, so that's what I did. And that's how I ended up in Laos for almost four years. And did you, please forgive me if you already said why or if you already alluded to, but why Laos out of any yeah. place in the world? I had traveled there. I had traveled there with a couple okay. of friends. Um, we had done kind of Southeast Asia Loved it. It was beautiful. Um, yeah, no, no great, no great reasons. I want to go back to real, real briefly before we move forward to, you talked about how Boston cold is different than New York cold, which is different than Oof. Pacific Northwest cold. I completely agree. Um, and, and I think part of New York cold, like Boston is just a cold city, like the people, the yes, everything, e everything, about it. the Every architecture, the people that, yeah, it just it. feels, it looks and feels and tastes cold. The reason <laughs> I think New York is more, more bearable when it's cold is because it's New York. Yeah. It's New yeah. York. Like, yeah, you don't get that, that magic feeling whenever you step on the sidewalk in New York, you know, like yeah. you don't get that magic. Well, in my opinion, anywhere else in the world. And I can say yeah. that intelligently because I've traveled all over the world. There's nothing like, you know, being in New York. Yeah. Um, agreed. But you definitely don't get that. And then 
And then Pacific Northwest, before we live in Nashville right now, we're moving to New York in somewhere between 30 to 60 days. So we're, oh, we're, we're ending our time. We'll talk about, you know, raising kids in, in New York and stuff here in a minute. Yeah. But we got three little kids. But before this, we moved from the Pacific Northwest. We were in Tacoma, okay. Washington, uh, just south of Seattle. And mm-hmm. that cold is different. We loved, like, we loved the Pacific Northwest cold. Like yeah. the kind where you don't need, you know, you don't need a down jacket. You don't need the heaviest clothing. You just need a good hoodie. Yeah, you know, you need you a good need hoodie good yeah. and, a, and a rain jacket and you're good. That's my favorite kind of cold. But it's, but, but New York cold is definitely bearable, mostly because yeah. you're in, you're cold in New York. And exactly. That, and that makes it much more bearable. Um, So you've been in New York for 10, 12 years? Uh, se- seven or eight. Seven yeah. or eight. Okay. I, I overshot a little bit there. Yeah. Um, how, how has that experience been for you? Um, did you, have you ever felt, cause there's different opinions, right? I, uh, about how long you have to be in a place to make you a New Yorker. Some will say, well, some will say the really hardcore people will say that unless you were born and raised there, born. you're never, yeah. you're never a New Yorker. Then there are those that are like, no less than seven. Like you've got to mm-hmm. be there seven to 10 years before you can even begin to call yourself a New Yorker. Yeah. Um, so wherever you land in, in, in that thinking, how has New York been for you? Do you love it? Are there things that you can't stand about it, but you can't get away from it? Are you going to be there for as long as you can? What is, yeah. what is New York for you? I, I love it. And I love it even more now coming out of this time of, of complete crisis as a city. Um, I tell people that are not from New York that I'm a New Yorker with the full caveat that I understand that true New Yorkers would be appalled at that statement. Um, but I think of myself as one now. I I love this city. And I, I was just talking to a friend the other day about how, you know, it's, I'm fully vaccinated and, and people are getting vaccinated. We're excited to travel. And of course I am with, you know, responsibility and caution. Um, but I'm also excited to do New York things. To like yeah. do the things that are like, there's a reason why we pay the rent to live in New York, which is not cheap. There's a reason why we live here. And it's the accessibility to, it's Shakespeare in the Park, which is my favorite thing in New York. So it's good. Summer Shakespeare in the Park or randomly going to a Mets game on $20 tickets because there's one that day. Um, so those types of things I just like cannot wait to have in my life again. I, I love the city. Is your husband from New York or is he also a transplant? Also a transplant. Grew up in Montana. Um, so it was, it was a very, very different experience for both of us. I mean, I had, had lived in San Francisco, but only for a couple of years, but nothing like living in New York. And he was slower to fall for the city. Um, but I do think that even this last year for him, having like worked at the epicenter, I think really rededicated himself to the city. What neighborhood do you all live in? Yeah, we're in Queens in Astoria. Queens. Nice. Okay. And, and so, so let me, let me, everybody's gonna have to listen into me just going off for here for a second about New York, but that's fine. They can shut it off or fast forward or whatever. Don't shut it off. Leslie has more to say. Um, (laughs) so we, so I was born in New York state, uh, Mm -hmm. upstate and always was fascinated by the idea of living in New York city one day. I mean, that's just like, I, I, I could never get away from it. And then, so then moved to Guatemala Traveled the world for six years, lived out of two suitcases, got married, wow. and we moved to Minnesota first. And when we first got married, well, so we got engaged in New York City. So my, I don't think she, I don't think my wife had ever been to New York. She was born in Pennsylvania, but then raised in Florida. We went to New York to get engaged. We saw Wicked on Broadway. I got oh. I got horrible food poisoning. Ooh. 
and had to propose to her um, on December 29, 2007. I mean, I am just dying and got up enough, like just, just enough semblance about me to like get on one knee and propose oh to her in New York city. It was the best slash worst experience of my life. Yes. So we got engaged in New York and it was sort of around that time that we were like, we're going to live in New York one day, like maybe move there and never leave again. You know, did Minneapolis. Then we went to the Pacific Northwest. Then we moved to Nashville to be closer to family for a while. We've not enjoyed Nashville at all. And now we're at the point where we're like, okay, I've part of the reason we couldn't move to New York up until now and not four years ago when we wanted to leave Nashville as soon as we arrived was because I kind of blew up our world and started all these different projects and a couple different companies. And so we were living, I was spending right. way more, way more money than I was making. And, and, and so now we're ready to do it. Right. And there's all sorts of opinions from people like where I'm asking all of our friends there, like, you know, we think that we want to move to Manhattan, Harlem, Upper right. West Side, somewhere up there. Would love to live downtown, but cannot afford it, right? You know, yeah. like all, all I have, I have certain friends that um, have been there for a long time, have really good jobs. Like, move to Tribeca. I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay. I, I literally, yeah. <laughs> first of all, I can't. There's no three bedrooms for under ten thousand no. in Tribeca. Can't run a lunch but, in Tribeca. Right, a hundred percent. Right. Um, but you. So you live in Astoria and that hasn't come up in a while. And so Astoria raising a kid, what, what do you, what do you say about living there? Like, do you, do you love it? Would you recommend that over Brooklyn or Manhattan or are you there for a particular reason? Well, so I've only lived in Queens, so it comes with that caveat, but yes, Queens is by far the best. I tell everyone to move to Queens. Um, it is one of the most, the borough of Queens, don't quote me on this. There's some stat about it. It's one of the most diverse areas in the U.S., yeah, it is. Um, it is. You see that in people and language and food and culture. Um, I love living in a neighborhood and then taking a very short chain ride and being in Manhattan. And I, and I love getting to experience both of those things and have a child that's being raised in a neighborhood where neighbors know her. Um, you know, there's a park down the street. She'll go to school around the corner. Hopefully, assuming she gets into the public school there. All that. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's, it, it, to me, it just has the best of both worlds. Um, and getting to have all of that and that experience is still having the proximity. Um, the Greek food is amazing. All, all the, all the food options really keep us here. Um, yeah, it's, it's my favorite spot in the city for sure. Is there any, is there good vegan food in Astoria? Oh, are you vegan? We are vegan. Ah, so I was vegan for many, many years. I was vegan up until like the day before I moved to Laos, where I was like, okay, I need to eat something before I go there and learn how to not be vegan. Sure. Um, so I'm not as familiar with the vegan scene here, but I, I there's certainly some. Um, it's probably not nearly as good as, as parts of Brooklyn and parts of Manhattan, though, in terms of restaurants. Well, uh, maybe we should, maybe we should uh, you know, put it back in the, the running because... Um, you know, what's hard about listening to people talk about where to move in New York is, you know, there's way different opinions if you have kids or don't have right. kids, right? So, right. I mean, oddly enough, all of my friends that have three or four kids, they all live in Manhattan and they swear mm -hmm. by it. They're like, move to the Upper West Side. You got yeah. great schools and you obviously got the park and this and that, right? Or Harlem. And then all my friends that are single are like, like they're like, fuck Manhattan, go to Brooklyn. Yes. Right. Yes. And they're like, yes. move to Brooklyn. It's like low key and there's no tourists around and this and that. And so it's really hard. I mean, I know the mm -hmm. city really well. I go there yeah. every chance I get. I mean, this last year was 
the longest I've ever gone without going to New York. But in a normal mm-hmm. year, I go six, eight times a year. Mm-hmm. I love going there. So I know the city really well, but it's hard to know. It's like visiting for a few days at a time versus living there. Versus living, two, yeah. Two totally different things. We'll have to maybe maybe look at some places in Astoria and see if uh, anything pops up for us. I really like it. I mean, we're, we are renting, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if people think that was kind of a really obvious statement to make. Um, but when we moved to the Dittmars area of Astoria, we are able to rent a house. We have a little backyard, which is for, you know, especially for New York standards, like huge. Um, with a kid during a pandemic, life-saving. Like so, sure. so, so lucky to have this space. That's awesome. Well, I'll let you know what we decide. Maybe we'll be neighbors somewhat. Uh, recommend at some it. point at some point okay pencils of promise I, I i kind of uh you know talked about how much i love pencils of promise at the beginning now let's dive right in so when did you before we talk about the organization how did you become acquainted with pencils of promise i i think it was around the time you went to laos yeah um so talk me through how you met adam in the organization and how you all you know became partners in in working and in in vision and all that yeah so i guess it was 2009, living in Portland, had been teaching, had been nannying, wanted to do something different. Ultimately, decided I'm going to move to Laos. And walking around with a very dear friend of mine, saying like, "Hey, I want to tell you some news. You know, I'm thinking that that we're going to be moving. This is my my then boyfriend, still very dear friend. Um, that we're thinking we're going to move to Laos." And she's like, "Wait, what? Do you know that I just the other day on Facebook saw this person that I was on semester at sea with is building a school in Laos." Like, mm. oh, that's random. I will. This is one, I think, an insight into what year it was, and two, kind of my presence on social media. I was like, I will get a Facebook account and message this person. Amazing. So I like sign up for Facebook. And I'm like, Dear Adam, someone I know is named Dolly went on semester and see with you. I heard you built a preschool. I teach preschool and I'm going to Laos. I'm like, that was it. Pencils of Promise didn't have a website. There was like one Facebook account. They had built one school. It was nothing, but it was like, hey, maybe this is something I can do while I'm there, while I figure out what I want to do next. Very much a stepping stone to what do I want to do next. It was never meant to be a destination. Um, so Adam and I had a phone call. I mean, he actually just saw him today. I think we were talking about, I was probably 23 or 24. He was 25. Um, had a phone call. Talked about how we both loved Bob Dylan and we both loved traveling. I mean, not not an interview by any means. Um, and then it sort of like left it at like, hey, if you ever get out to Laos, you know, let's let's meet up. Several months later, we come to find out we were actually on the same exact flight from oh my Thailand, God. like the little tiny prop plane from Thailand to Long Rome. So we met wow. in line at the Lao Airlines flight. Uh, we spent two weeks there. He was there visiting the one school he had built and you know, kind of seeing how things growing. He spent, I want to say, two or three weeks there. We spent pretty much every day together with, you know, our colleague, my now colleague, Lenoy, uh, traveling and, you know, seeing schools and meeting with people. And then I ended up staying for four years, which seems very random now. But um, when he left, he was like, would you like to try and doing this? And, you know, I was a volunteer. There was no there was no funding. There was no anything. And, and that's really what happened. I stayed behind and we ended up building out the team there. Uh, what? number employee were you at pencils of promise because you met him you know right at the, yeah. at the beginning yeah i think in terms of like paid employee i was probably like number two or three um, wow because there was a there was a great committed group of volunteers in new york that were like helping to raise the money 
and do all the work. In terms of like impact employees, a programmatic employee, I was number two. My colleague, Lenoy, who's still the country director there, was the first person that Adam met. Then her and I synced up, um, became, of course, very dear friends and worked together for a very long time. But yeah, it would have been the second employee working on the programmatic side. Your first role at the company was director of impact, correct? Was Lao country director. Lao country director. First. So you've mm-hmm. so you've held four kind of uh, official roles at yes. the company. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So Lao country director. Um, did you take the director of impact? Was that when you came back? Was that when you came back yeah. to the U.S. that you became the yeah. director of impact? Yeah, I got I got kicked out of my job by my colleagues in Laos. You know, that's which amazing. Was the goal. Yeah, yeah, it was the goal. Um, sucked at first because long wrong Laos is really beautiful and going re- relocating out of there is hard. Um, but yeah, I was, I mean, the way that I like to think about it is they, they, their names are Lenoy and Yacht are better at that job than I ever could be in a million years, um, with the skill sets they have. So it was for the good of the company. And then, yeah, but I wanted to stay, stay with Pencils of Promise. So I relocated to New York, took on that role, kind of rose to the organization in that, and now serve in in an operational role that does both operations and impact. So talk, for those that don't know, I'm I'm sure many people, because Pencils of Promise done just great work, and a lot of people know about Pencils of Promise. But for those that don't, give us the the elevator pitch for who you are and what you do, vision and mission. What's the heart of Pencils of Promise? What's the promise, yeah. right? The pencils of promise. Yeah. Like what's that promise that you are offering? At Pencils of Promise, we believe that education is the the great equalizer. The education is opportunity. The education is is really what unlocks and unleashes potential. Um, I the way that I describe our work to uh, to folks who are kind of familiar is saying that we do rural education development. And those are pretty um in Ghana, Guatemala, and Laos. And my my stance on it, and while we are certainly for the outcomes of students looking to better, you know, just better the outcomes of students in primary education, I come from a, from a standpoint of an educator, raised by educators, of we are here to support teachers. Mm. We're here to support teachers who are doing thankless and hard work to make their lives easier and their outcomes better. And those teachers in the most, in some of the most over-exploited and under-resourced settings, um, ensuring that they have the resources that they need and deserve to do their jobs well. And, you know, thankfully we are, or I guess coincidentally enough, we are recording this conversation uh, during Teacher Appreciation Week, right? And I, I, I would say globally, we have collectively never been more grateful for teachers. Right. Yeah, they they are the overworked, underpaid, like the truest of true heroes, because the great equalizers education, one of the most important things we can ever gift to our children is the gift of education. Because of that, you would think that they would be getting paid all the money, right? Let's let's flip this on its head. Forget if you can play, you know, football or basketball or baseball, we'll pay you just a normal salary. Right. And we'll give all that money to teachers. And it's just not that way. And it's, you know, being the father of now three children, it's one of the most, maybe one of the most frustrating things for me to watch Mm -hmm. is to see the quality of education that my kids are getting, even at the public school level. And it's amazing. I mean, it really is. I get it. There's problems with public school system and it obviously depends on where you are, but by and large, 
most places, most teachers, most school systems, they're doing their damnedest to give our kids the best education they can. And we're giving them barely enough to scrape by on. So I just want to take a moment <laughs> to, to thank all the teachers out there on this teacher appreciation yes. week to, or month rather, uh, is it a week or a month? I think it's, I think it's it, a month. It should I, I think be it's a month, week, but should be a month. Yeah, exactly. It, there, like, I, 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 I think, think that's right. Be a month, right? Yeah. It is yeah. teacher appreciation week and it should be a month or a year, a, month, a year or a decade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lifestyle. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so thank you, teachers. Um, why Guatemala, Laos, and Ghana? Yeah. Before I answer that, where in Guatemala did you live? In Guatemala City? So we lived, yeah. I mean, we traveled all over the country, but our right. our home was in Guatemala City. Loved it. Like, wouldn't trade growing up there for literally any amount of money or anything. Like, it was it yeah. was so dangerous and it was so wild yeah. and it was so crazy because <laughs> I grew up there at the tail end of the almost forty year civil war. Uh, yeah. We moved there in the nineties and it was very, wow. very, very dangerous. I mean, I've yeah. seen I've seen people get murdered right in front of me. There was, you know. They, they tried to kidnap me. I got caught in the crossfire of with like police and basically like cops and robbers. Like I got caught in the middle yeah. of it, like insane upbringing, but I, I just loved it. So yeah, Guatemala City. Yeah, got it. Um, so why we're operating the current places is, is a, it's really the story of like the evolution of an organization, right? So it's not, I'm not going to give you an answer that's like, we looked at the globe and we picked these three countries that had these X, Y, and Z indicators. Um, it was more the evolution of people and the evolution of the founder and, and our story together. So Laos was a place that was near and dear to Adam's heart that he had traveled to. And then, of course, done his due diligence, learning that as a landlocked nation in Southeast Asia, it was one of the poorest countries. It was one of the, the um, least supported by aid. Um, and therefore kind of also the least saturated by aid. Um, it had a deep commitment to education development. So that's really how we ended up in Laos. Of course, there's a lot more diligence that he did to that story. Moving from there to Central America, we started working in Nicaragua and Guatemala. We, we no longer operate in Nicaragua, but we moved to those two places with kind of the goal of wanting to be a global organization and not wanting to be that Lao organization. Um, where a lot of people are like, oh, is that in China? Eh, no, <laughs> it's right. not. Um, you know, not not knowing, not being able to conceptualize, and wanting to test. Like, we thought we had a great model that could be global, but we needed to know: it, is it actually, or does it just work here in Laos? So, moving to Central America for that reason, and then ultimately, by the time we moved to Ghana, and I and I want to say it was 2012 that we went to Ghana. That was where we were maturing as an organization. And we got this amazing advice from a very, a, a very dear then board member and friend who said like, this is the time as an organization that you do portfolio management. You pick somewhere where you're going to be really successful. Yeah. Like choose somewhere where you can do the work. You don't always have to choose the hardest place to work. Um, Laos is hard to work in. It's a closed country. It's a, it's a lot, it's very challenging. So it's like pick somewhere that you are going to be, that you are going to have success and that that, that partnership is really going to work. So that's how we ended up in Ghana. Um, and, and there are three very different places, obviously. Um, there are certainly cross learnings, but I think the fun thing about being a global organization is the, the joy and the complication of contextualizing things, of saying, here's our global programs, but here's how they make sense in different places. And here's how they have to look very different in different places. Um, 
you know, I mean, obviously the curriculum's not the same, nothing's the same. So right. it's, it's really, it's very fun working in such dramatically different spaces. Now is there, I'm sure there's a, a temptation, maybe not, but I, I would think that there'd be a temptation to cover as much ground as possible. Right. In other words, like why three countries, why not 40 countries? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's probably a lot of wisdom in saying, no, let's reject that notion. Maybe, you know, yeah. maybe it grows slowly, but surely maybe there's five, six, eventually, whatever. But there's, there's maturity and also just wisdom in saying, no, let's, let's, instead of spreading out super thin and not doing it well, let's pick a few places that make sense yeah. for a variety of reasons, whether we have an affinity toward, you know, Adam loving Laos or whatever, mm -hmm. like you're just going deep there and, and ensuring that our impact lasts not just not just years, but decades and generations. What's exactly. the th what's the thinking there with those with not expanding as quickly? Yeah, very much that. Like, let's do a few things really well. Let's um, maximize our ROI. Let's go deeper in places that we're already working. Um, and let's. To me, the I love I love organizational strategy, and I love thinking about like programmatic strategy. And I think that one of the hardest skills to really hone in, in strategically growing your work and your organization is when you say no and what you say no to, because it can be very hard, especially in those like entrepreneurial early years. It's very hard when someone says, here's X million dollars come to India. It's really hard to say, no, here's why we're not going to do that. And it gets easier and easier once you have, once you're less resource constrained and you have more experience, but Saying no has been, I think, what has helped us be successful. Saying no in those moments, saying like, you know, we think we can be most effective if we double down our efforts in Ghana. If we we have the team there, we have the country director there, we have the model there. And when we're talking about like actual footprint, we're in very small areas of each of these countries overall, right? Um, so we, we have a lot of room to grow and to operate where we currently are. So I think it's, it was a it was a smart decision. It was hard. We had to say no to a lot of appealing things in those early years. But I think because of that, we were able to um, to to grow smartly, to to expand smartly, to scale smartly, not just quickly. Yeah. No. I. I mean. I. I applaud that as someone who spent 15 years in the nonprofit space, left it super tired, super worn out, and like 50% resentful. Yep. You know, I left that to start, let's, you know, I, I left that to do a bunch of things, but one of the results was starting, let's give a damn to find out, you know, what are the myriad of ways that people give a damn, right? It's not just mm -hmm. nonprofit work, right? No. But I still had this like deep love. I mean, that was my roots was my entire career up until 2015 was nonprofit work. So I applaud that. I applaud that thinking. I love that. It makes me love, you know, pencils of promise even more than I already do. If you can get specific with you know, you help students, you help teachers, people can go on the website and see the different ways that you have an impact, like, but get specific about like, what are the different ways? So I even love that you even went more specific and said, we've got a lot of to grow even in these three countries. We don't have these three mm -hmm. countries, you know, totally covered. So even in these small geographical areas where you all work, what specifically mm -hmm. do you do and how are you measuring the impact of your work? Yeah. So we, like I said, the way that I frame it is rural education development. That's not a tagline that you'll see used anywhere else. It's the way that I think about it, kind of in my, the way that I think in terms of programs no, and, I love it. and strategy. We do a myriad of things, but we build schools and we create programs that 
help schools thrive, that help schools be a place where learning can happen, that help schools be a place that uh, students want to go to, that help schools be a place that are safe, that parents want to send their children to. So what that looks like is when a lot of times that's the physical structure. It's, you know, prior to a school, you had a mango tree, which you couldn't learn under in different kinds of weather. So you need an actual physical structure. Um, a lot of that is the water sanitation and hygiene, the wash program that comes along with it, the things that you and I would never send our kids to school without. Obviously, there's going to be a bathroom where your kids go to school. Obviously, my daughter goes to school or folks who menstruate go to school. They will have the safety of, of a bathroom and clean supplies and all that kind of stuff. Give, uh, just a given to us, right? So yep. how do we make sure that, that that all exists, particularly as barriers for young girls? And then ensuring that the teacher has the tools and resources to do their job incredibly well. And my emphasis there is that, that the teacher wants to be there. You don't, not many people are teachers for the perks. I'm trying to think, is there like a caveat to that? I, I don't think so. I don't know what the perk would be. Right. <laughs> There's probably not one big enough, right? Um, especially in overly exploited areas of the world there you're not you're not a teacher for the glory you are often very underpaid and under-resourced and underserved so what you want is your students to succeed you're there because you really want to see success and so we want to support systems from within so we work with public schools for a reason even though public school systems are challenging we work with them for a reason um we believe that they are systemic change will come from that rather than low-cost private schools um, so we're working within public school systems to ensure that they can support the teachers in their own networks. Like they have the resources and the tools and professional development and the ongoing learning to support, to support teachers as they kind of go through their journey in, in these communities. And so for us, that's evolved over the years. I think it's, it's really deeply measured in student outcomes. It's measured in, um, literacy rates. We really deeply believe in, you know, your ability to, leave primary school being able to read means that you will be able to to read to learn when you are in middle school and high school right you'll be able to succeed in middle school and high school if you have that really foundational skill that allows you to then read your science textbook it allows you to then do all of these other really key elements of continuing your education but we also believe that school is more than that school is more than your phonemic awareness yes. <laughs> school is more than these other things and that has been never more clear than during COVID. And I think something that my colleague Freeman Goba, who's our country director in Ghana, said very, um, I think just kind of off the cusp, but very pointedly in my, in my mind, it was early on in the pandemic when we were saying that we want Pencils of Promise to be, to be the place, the people, the organization that continue to show up for you when you were your most vulnerable. Mm. We don't want to be the organization that said, you know what, actually, we only do literacy. So this is a global health issue. We're out. We're not going to go starting, you know, investing in developing a vaccine because it's not our skill set. But that doesn't mean we can't pivot. That doesn't mean we can't try to, you know, see where we can meet a need and fill that need. And I think that thinking, to me, it was a way to put words to the way a lot of us think about the work at Pencils of Promise. Like we want to just be there. And then really put words to a future strategy of, you know, he helped us articulate when we go back and schools are now going back in, in various phases throughout Ghana, Guatemala, and Laos, when we go back, we don't want to be so close-minded that we're thinking, hey, welcome back, everyone. The first thing you need is a workshop on literacy. Like, 
the first thing you need is how are you? Are you okay? You have probably just come out of a lot of trauma. Mm. Maybe mm. school was the one place where you were safe, where you were cared for, where, you know, who knows, right? A myriad of circumstances could have been happening in this time away from school. And so let's take this time to show up, to show up where you need us, to really go deep in social emotional learning and really supporting the, the holistic classroom, the child, the teacher, making sure that we're there for them. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that approach to caring for children and, and teachers and families um, in, in the most vulnerable of times is really how I, how, I, how I would articulate kind of our work in general and how we want to see ourselves going forward. I love that so much. I can't tell you how many times this year I have had experienced all the emotions yeah. from, from thinking about, like, obviously, uh, for, for most of this year, I have wholeheartedly supported, you know, virtual learning because it's safe. It's safer that way, right? In, in terms of the physical health, of the child, it's safer to keep them in, you know, in a controlled environment where the virus yep. can't get to them or the teachers, the spread, all that stuff. Yep. But every other part of life, it has sucked so badly. I mean, so many kids, yep. as you pointed out, they're one, they're one, they felt safer at school. Yeah. They, they were getting fed. Yeah. They were get, They were getting loved on. Yeah. They were experiencing not just, you know, the educational benefit of school, but they were experiencing friends and community and maybe yeah. going back to a place where I'm not talking. I mean, obviously, I I, I, I mean, the worst emotions that I felt is when I think about kids that are experiencing abuse at home right. and it's not a safe environment. But even if it was a safe family environment, it's hard. And even, I mean, I love being out with people. I'm like a double extreme extrovert. And all I want to be around with is people, 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 including my family. But I'm always, before the pandemic, I was always traveling and out with people and meetings every day, keeping myself busy because I love people. Yeah. And our kids need that. It, it shapes them. It forms them. It helps them. Into, and, and I mean, I know that it was hard here, here in the U.S. where we have resources. And even in Nashville, like they would still... They were giving money to families, right? They were giving money to families to buy food at home, right? So they were taken yeah. care of. They were sending they were sending the bus around with meals, right? All yeah. that stuff was still happening. I can't imagine in these places where they just cut off, like none of that. They didn't have yeah. that infrastructure. So I'm I'm so happy to hear you just emphasize, you know, on the one hand, in extreme focus, we're not going to spread thin. We're going to focus on these, you know, these small geographical areas. But then on top of that, that allows you to provide holistic, holistic yeah. help, a holistic yeah. experience, not just, Hey, we're going to give you textbooks and a teacher, yeah. but you're thinking through menstrual cycles. You're thinking yeah. through yeah. Yeah. like s s clean environments. You're thinking about the hugs they're going to receive there and the check-ins they're going to receive from their teachers. That's yeah. So important. Yeah. Yeah. School is so, so much more than, than those basic learning needs that are also incredibly important, but, but it goes so much, so much deeper and, and just showing up for people in that moment. When we first started a, we started a, um, an SMS response line in Ghana. So we were texting out kind of mass blasting texts out to teachers, really anyone we had a phone number of. 
And in the beginning, it was just, first of all, it was like COVID awareness stuff. It was just like, right. Hey, here's, you know, here's WHO's tips on COVID, like to help the spread of the, to stop the spread rather of misinformation to really make sure we're putting out resources. And then it became, here's the domestic abuse hotline. Should you need it? Here's a food insecurity hotline. Should you need it? Because we had the resources to do it. So, you know, that now was, that was not the time to say, you know, download the reading app. <laughs> like that was, that's no, that's not, that's not what matters in this moment. And later we did do that. Once things stabilized, we were able to say, you know, now tune in at this time, we're going to be reading a story aloud um, because we got to that place. But you have to first just show up first. Those really, really, really basic needs are not being met and need to be there. So what does the future look like? Um, not just not just coming out of the pandemic and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, restarting all the programs you had going before once the kids are back in school safe and sound. But yeah, what are, what are you all dreaming about? Like what's what's next for for Pencils of Promise? It, something that I like to say that I think is probably like hard to put into a tagline, but the way that I like to think about it is that it's not even possible to imagine what we'll be doing in 10 years because we are so adept at responding to a changing environment. Mm. If I were to tell you in 10 years, we'll be using X technology to deliver Y curriculum. That's so short-sighted and not, and doesn't embody the innovation that Pencils of Promise was built on. Something that, that I say that is very basic, but that I truly believe that what sets Pencils of Promise apart is that we do what works mm. and we just, don't do what doesn't work. And that sounds again, very basic, but that's not true of a lot of nonprofits. A lot of nonprofits don't have the freedom to do that. A lot of nonprofits don't have the, um, the generous supporters that we have, like all of our biggest foundations and donors. I, I personally have the capability to go to and say, you know, that thing we were thinking about doing together, it's not testing how we thought it was going to. Mm. So let's pivot, let's change. And let's do something different. We're not stuck in a five-year grant cycle of, Everyone knows this program isn't going anywhere. We all know it sucks. All of our colleagues in Ghana, Guatemala, Laos are telling us it's a waste of time, but we better keep doing it. So, you know, long, long way to say, I, I think that it, a lot of it is unknown in a really good way, in a way that allows us to continue to pivot. Something that I think that we, we want to grow in our expertise and we want to scale, but we want to scale smarter, right? We don't, we will not, I don't foresee a world in which we scale exactly the way that we've grown to date. So I don't see a world in which we say, okay, here is the next country. Let's go. Let's hire the country director. Let's meet with the Ministry of Education. Let's do that, right? Rather, what are unique opportunities? What it what happens when a country's Ministry of Education comes to us and says, hey, we really like the results you're getting from a teacher support program. Could we partner with that Ministry of Education and help train their teachers from within the system? And, and those kinds of opportunities that would allow us to take our work to scale in um, in really, truly sustainable ways where, you know, from an implementation perspective, you know, you need to have that, that public work, uh, involved yeah. in order to make it truly sustainable. So I see us responding to those kinds of needs. I see us, um, growing in our support and that I think something that was so attractive about Pencils of Promise to me and has attracted other people is that we, I believe that no one at our organization thinks that philanthropy is a zero sum game. We are the other day, a couple weeks ago, rather, I had a conversation with a foundation who is no longer going to be funding us because they have pivoted to in this crisis, have pivoted to funding food security in the Pacific Northwest. Mm. 
And I think at some, some organizations, when you hear that, <clears throat> you say like, okay, here's my chance to double down and convince you that you need to fund Laos. Where I was like, this person's not going to fund Laos right now. And that's okay. So I would, you know, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I want to hear about this. Tell me sure. all about it. And like, if there's ever anything I could do for you, you know, I don't know, I don't work in the same sector, but if you ever need anything, like email me. And I want us to be that kind of organization that is, Love it. you know, it's not, there is, there are, there are enough dollars. There are enough philanthropic dollars to go around. Um, and, and if we can support particularly young folks, particularly young philanthropists into how to give with meaning, how to invest your time and energy and dollars with meaning into into things that you care about. Sometimes, sometimes it won't be our cause. Sometimes it will be other causes, but that's good too. Food security in the Pacific Northwest is also very important. Um, so I think continuing that and really doubling down on that message to help philanthropy and and young folks just have the energy and the, and the desire to do that. That's super important. I love what you said a few seconds ago. You said there are enough dollars to go around. I think that's important to keep in mind for all damn givers, regardless of what you're trying to help out in, the problem you're trying to solve, the money's out there. And I think it's incumbent upon us in, in, in this ever increasingly distracted world where there's just so much going on in social media and everything it's incumbent upon us to get creative, to tell our story better, to just be better at, uh, and, and to do what you're doing, what you just, this foundation example you just gave to realize that we can, we, we don't have to, we don't have to try to keep that foundation giving money to yeah. us, right? Cause there's yeah. so much to do. And if their heart and if their vision is changing and they're feeling you know, uh, 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 drawn to this problem over here. That's a good thing. Great. Let's, let, yes. let's Great. figure out, right. That's a good thing. I shouldn't try to beg them to come back. Great. Now we have, uh, you know, some would see that as a problem. Now we have the opportunity to go find money elsewhere, but good on yeah. them for following their heart and their dream and their vision to make sure there's food security in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Yeah. And, and that attitude I think is why you and Pencils of Promise will continue to be successful because that's not, yeah. that's pretty rare. Hopefully as this younger generation, and I say younger, like our age and our thirties and younger, mm -hmm. um, I think we get that more than yeah. past generations did in philanthropy where it was yeah. more cutthroat and it was more, you know, beg, borrow and steal for everything. And there was this attitude of this, er, this, this lack of abundance. Like there wasn't yes. this idea that there was enough to go around. I feel like there's much more collaboration, much more this idea of sharing and realizing that there's enough to go around. That can only benefit Pencils to Promise, you personally, me with what I'm doing. Cause we mm -hmm. can all we can all be excited for each other and root for each other yeah. and not yeah. feel like, oh, they got some, so that means I get less. Hell no. Right. Yeah, there's enough out there for all of us. No, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like an an abundance mindset is so important in this work. And I think even the programmatic side of it, sometimes people will say like, what, what happens when a teacher you've trained goes on to another school? I'm like, great. That other school has a trained teacher. That's huge. That's awesome. Like that, that is a ripple effect that we want to be a part of. Did you bring this, uh, to, to use the term you just used this abundant, the abundance mindset. Did you bring that to pencils of promise? Did you learn that early on? Is it something you've learned alongside pencils of promise? 
probably alongside. I think it was probably part of the like founding ethos. The 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 the, the I think really part of the founding story of Fences Promise is audacity. Is that um, small groups of young people can change the world? Is that small gifts can change the world? Is that people without any money but the ability to share a tweet can change the world? Like those types of things. That there is. There is more out there and, and it's on you to get it. I think that's been something that has kept us going as an organization um, that continues to excite people who partner with us and excite employees and communities that we work with because we see things as as opportunities. For, for the rest of our time together, I want to pivot back to focusing on you and not you and Pencils of Promise together. Because I think we have a lot to learn from you. You've you've traveled the world. You've helped um, Pencils of Promise because you were paid employee number two, and you've been around <laughs> for years in this work. Uh, we have a lot to learn from you. I, I, I imagine. So let's let's start with uh, let's start here. Everybody that's listening to this podcast, we, we might have some people come in from time to time because I had these bigger guests come in, right? And they might mm-hmm. they, they might come in to hear from whoever, you know, Priyanka or Matthew McConaughey or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm not, I love that they come in, but a lot of them like take off as soon, you know, for the next episode right. because it's like not their favorite person anymore. But the core people that are listening right now, they want to have, they want to make meaningful, make a meaningful impact on the world. Um, they want to figure out they're, they're currently trying as well as I am, they're currently trying to figure out what are the things they give a damn about? How are they going to give a damn about those things? So speak, I'm going to ask a very subjective question that hopefully will help the objective whole for you personally, for, for Leslie, what's most important as people are trying to figure out how to give a damn how to figure out their thing or their things. But I try to help people figure out not, or try, try to focus not on the things because that can become overwhelming. Like start with a thing. What 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 makes your heart, like, you know, what makes the passion part of you really like wake up and get excited? As they're figuring out what that is, what are the kinds of things they should focus on? What should they not mm-hmm. focus on? How, help people get from point A to point B in a, we're all going to go through trials and tribulations and we're going to, we're going to mess up and we're going to trip here and there and we're going to fail. But based on your experience and the things you've learned, not just personally, but you've also been able to, you know, rub shoulders with some pretty successful, important people along the way that have helped, Mm -hmm. you know, pencils of promise grow, help us figure out how to give a damn. Yeah. I love that. So I think kind of two sides of it. I think that the first side is recognizing and then being willing to share or give up your inherent or earned privilege and power. Um, for me, that is being white America. For me, that is, you know, the, the inherent privileges that come with my position in this world, where I was born, what family I was born into, the mobility that I had, the ability that I got to say, I want to go to Laos and live there. That's not because I care more than someone else that that cannot do that, right? That is recognizing sure. I have the power and privilege to do this, and that is huge. And am I willing to share that? Am I willing to give it up at moments when I when I need to? Am I willing to amplify others in that moment? 
And then I think that leads to the second part of what I think about is, is joy. And how does that then bring me joy? How does that allow me to share joy and fill my, my life with joy and those around me and what I do and steering clear of the things that don't bring that out, that don't, that, that are causes that are not near and dear to my heart. But again, keeping in mind that is from that place of power and privilege. I get to do something that I care very deeply about. And not everybody gets to do that. Like in early stages of the pandemic, right? When it was like, stay home, stay home, stay home. Stay home if you can. Stay home if you have the right. privilege to stay home. Right. I am. I was very fortunate. I could stay home. I could, I could work from home and keep my job. I could, you know, care for my child. I got to do that. So I had the power and privilege to do that. And then I was able to create a, a joyful experience in what was not a very joyful experience with my family and my daughter. So I think it's those two things in my mind when out of balance um, become disproportionate, right? Become like if I'm just seeking the, I want to cause that I really care about, you can kind of quickly become like, well, we should all just give up everything and do what we do what we can to make the world a better place. That is forgetting that part of privilege and power. And it's not acknowledging the very real existence of that. Um, but at the same time, if you're, you know, if you're seeking to kind of maintain that, you're not allowing yourself the, the things that do bring you joy and the things that bring joy to your life, not your work, but, but both, you know, and allow you to trickle into both. I think I'm sure you would agree as a parent, like it's so becoming a parent is just a hard reset. You're like, ah, okay, great. (laughs) Don't care about the bullshit. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Care about my family and yep. care about the world that I create for my family, care about the world that I leave, the world, the example that I set, the, you know, the way that I get to show up for my family. And, and it is the ultimate, it's the ultimate reset. And just like, I'm going to not waste time on things that don't help other people and or bring me and other people some joy, right? If it's not doing some of those things, then what, then what am I doing? What am I doing it for? And, and allowing yourself to to really find those things. And then I think just like when you can doing it, what, what you, what you feel uniquely skilled to do, like I feel uniquely skilled to support and work and partner with educate with educators, but I don't feel uniquely skilled at being an educator necessarily. Right. So like, but you try and shove it in that thing. Like I could do it. And I think I would be good at it because it wouldn't bring me joy, I would ultimately not be that good at it, right? I would be quite jaded after a few years. Yep. I would ultimately just be really frustrated that Patricia would come through to students and colleagues in my family. Um, so the thing I'm more uniquely suited to do is kind of work behind the scenes and support educators. But recognizing that within yourself, I think is such a key, key step to, to getting there. Yeah, I love that. I love that you just connected those dots from the beginning of the conversation to now, which is you know, it seemed like the path ahead for you early on was education, right? Your parents are educators and you realized uh, pretty early on that it didn't bring you joy and that you could do it and you were skilled at it, but it didn't bring you fulfillment. And that's so important. And now in, 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 in just a crazy, you know, evolution of your life, you now get to enable, you know, hundreds, thousands of educators to do their job well. And that's, you're, that's how you're contributing. You're not the educator, but you're enabling them to do that. Super important to sort of like notice that and celebrate that. 
because I think it is important for us. And again, it's also a privileged thing to say, but I also think that more people than not can get into that place, which is some people do have to, they, they, they get dealt a, a shitty hand and they have to sort of deal with their reality, but more people than not, I think can through hard work and perseverance and partnering with the right people, places, and things can eventually work themselves into a position where they're at least semi to Mm -hmm. completely fulfilled, you know, doing what brings them joy. You know, I think, I think people give up too early. A lot of times they're like, well, I've been doing it for four or five years. I've been trying, trying, it's not working. Well, I'll just, I'll just do the damn thing and just do the nine to five. And I'm like, okay, fine. But I think if you just, we're not privy to the information. We're not privy to knowing if we had just, if we had just jumped over three more hurdles, two more years, five more years, we would have gotten to that place where we could feel super fulfilled in what we're doing, whatever that is, doesn't have to be in nonprofit Mm -hmm. work or whatever, but like, just keep pushing. That's what I always tell people is like, I don't know, it might not work out for you, but keep pushing because I think you can Mm -hmm. get to that place where you are doing something that is both meaningful and you're also really fulfilled doing so. Yeah. And that you don't have to think in terms of, of comparisons. You don't have to have to think in terms of scale in a term of absolutes. It's not, how many people could I impact by doing this thing? It's it's what kind of impact could I make? Yeah. And those are very different questions. And being too motivated by the how many can get you like, well, I can't impact millions, so I might as well not impact any. <laughs> it's I like, love well, that. there's there can be a lot in between there. There's a lot between none and millions. Yeah. There are literally, you know, nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-seven <laughs> people <Yeah>. between, <laughs> you know, impacting three and impacting a million in every one of Every job, every career path, every project in between there is super, super meaningful. Um, I'm wondering about self-care and I'm using that. I don't usually use the words self-care, but but it's the most, you know, it's the most normal way or the most like commonly used way yeah. of saying that. The, the, yeah. the way that we talk about it at Let's Give a Damn is like before you can give a damn about each other, which is step mm-hmm. two, which is the people around you. They're the people that you're going to pour into them. They're going to pour into you. That's your community, your family, your, your partner, your kids before you get there, which is, which is before impacting others, which is people that Mm -hmm. might not ever thank you. Right. You have to, Mm -hmm. you have to build up to that. And the first thing you have to do is give a damn about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm terrible at that, but I Mm -hmm. preach it. And I'm usually preaching to myself before preaching to others. Like, dude, before you start doing all these other things, you got to make sure you're healthy enough. So for, yeah. for you, how do you give a damn about yourself? How do you make sure that you are well enough mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to do mm-hmm. the work that you've taken on? How, how are you taking care of yourself? Yeah, I think, um, I don't remember like an active moment of thinking this, but this popped in my head when you asked this question. I think something that has changed in my life in the last several, maybe five years is that I, I no longer allow myself to think in terms of something being a, a, a guilty pleasure. And I'm just like, I actually, I don't feel guilty that I really like crime novels. <laughs> like I don't, I, I, I like them. I like them. It lets me zone out, but also reset. I like it. So whatever. So I'm going to do it. Or that's the yep. thing that I enjoy. And so I let myself have those things that bring me joy. It's a lot of reading brings me joy. A lot of um, doing nothing sometimes where I think that is like 
particularly as a parent, allowing yourself to like, all right, you know, my kids asleep, my kids doing this, I should do, 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 do. And if I'm not doing that, it's not productive. Like, or I don't know, like the leaves are really beautiful out my window right now. I'm just going to kind of doodle right here and zone out and listen to an audiobook. Yeah. Because that will help me reset and show up for the next thing. Because you, when you stretch yourself too thin, you're just not showing up. But I, I don't think that's something I was capable of doing even five years ago. I think I was set on, I'm not going to like little things like, right. Like I'm not going to watch this movie that I really want to watch. Cause I'm going to watch this documentary that everyone's talking about. Mm. Sometimes just watch the movie you really want to watch. Like, I don't know, just watch it. Who cares? Like if it's whatever, it's going to allow you to reset, to invest in yourself, to show up the next day for other people. That's I, I love that answer. And it sort of resonates with me because I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore person. Like from the time mm-hmm. I was a little kid, to now, I've always just gone super hard all the time, every day, like always getting chores done before my siblings, up earliest, to bed the latest, trying to maximize every moment. Literally, as a kid, I would read a book a night and like be up super early doing chores. And 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 it's been, I've been in recovery for years right. from that because, I mean, even even in my twenties, there were there was a whole almost decade of my life where I got four, four and a half, five hours of sleep every night for a decade. Like I just worked myself to a bone. I love reading. I love learning. And I was just Mm -hmm. devouring so much. And now I'm taking it a little easier, right? And kids, Mm -hmm. you know, I have, I have three kids, two companies just started a nonprofit, all these projects going on. And now sometimes I will, I will have these moments where it's funny. You just said about the movie thing, because Typically, my response is like, no, I can't watch this stupid movie, this stupid, right. ridiculous movie. It doesn't mean anything. Right. I'm going to go watch that series, that documentary, that masterclass. It's the same thing, right? Like, yeah. I'm, it's, yeah. on, yeah. it's not. It's not because you're, yeah. you're forced to be like learning and engaging. Yeah. And the other night, I was just watching a movie. I was just watching a yeah. movie. And I felt bad about it until I didn't. Until I said, yeah. you know what? Right now, I want to smoke a cigar. I want to watch a movie and I want to do nothing. And that was so good for me. That was so good. And so I'm, I'm learning that along with you that you don't need to do anything. Like sometimes self-care is just doing this mindless activity that you don't know it, but it's refreshing you. It's giving you time to just shut off all the rest of the work and the emails and the building stuff and the buying the other domain for that idea you just had. And actually just like doing nothing, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you, do you use Goodreads? Uh, my wife is, she's, we're both voracious readers. She's like double uh-huh. the amount. She loves Goodreads. I've tried to get into it, but I don't. But wh- why do you ask? I ask because it, I ca- I catch myself regularly thinking about this when it comes to reading a book on Goodreads, right? I have an active thought that's like, okay, that was technically a good book. So I'm going to give it a five because that was like a work of literature. <laughs> I know yeah. it. I didn't enjoy it. Got it. And I kept yep. myself thinking that, or I'm like, all right, you know, the book, the second book in this romance series, I loved, I powered through it in a day. I thought it was brilliant. I see that everyone else gave it a two and a half. Like I have this actual thought each time. And I'm like, no, the reading is for me. First of all, what do yep. I care? And I'm like, well, that's releasing it. Like I enjoyed it. It brought me joy in this moment which is also, I think, a unique thing because it's like, especially with media or books or just the way that we consume things, it's it's where you were in that moment in your life. Yep. You could read it or watch it at a different time and it would have less meaning or it's just like, 
yeah, that was technically a good book. And I stopped reading at page 25 because I was not into it. And that's okay. And, and, and that's fine. Doesn't, doesn't change your experience of it or mine. That's a really great observation. I love that. And I've had my version of that because I, I do read a lot of books, but I don't put it down in Goodreads. But even mentally, that has happened before yeah. where it's like, I've got to yes. power through. It's supposed to be this great, important work. And then other books, I'm yeah. like, damn, that was like, yeah, maybe not the most popular book out there, but I loved it. Yes. And that's okay. Yes. Yes. I started recently telling everybody about this YA book that I recently read that's set in Taiwan. And I'm like, everyone needs to read this book. And I'm so sure that most people that read it are going to be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, this was, this was a great book. Everyone should go there. You'll have to tell me which book it is. Not for me, but for my wife loves, I always tease her. She reads so many YA books. She reads like 130 oh. books a year. She's like, in, she's a machine. Even with three kids, yeah. she's like, she's like one book every two or three days. Yeah. She loves YA. So you'll have to tell me after because she'll probably really dig it. Yeah, okay. I'm sure she will. Last question. You've been so gracious with your time. Um, I've loved this conversation and I want to end with this one. I actually haven't done it in a while. I did it. I asked this question as the final question for almost every episode for the first 150, and I've kind of strayed mm. from it for a variety of reasons, but I feel like I need to ask it now, so I'm going to. Hypothetical, situ hypothetical situation, hypothetical scenario, you know, 50, 60, 70 years from now, for some odd reason, I've been asked, you pass away after a long and fulfilling life, and I've been asked to give your <laughs> eulogy. You're surrounded by all the people that love you, all the people that you love. It's a, it's a really big room because you've done very impactful work and they've all come to celebrate and mourn your life. I get on the stage to give your eulogy. What do you hope that I'm saying about you and your life in that moment? I hope you're saying that I loved people, that I believed in people and I loved people that I believed in the power of people to do extraordinary things and that that showed up in, and for everyone that's sitting there, that, that showed up for them. Um, and that I was not, that I was open to, to loving unconditionally and loving, you know, just recklessly and just, just loving and caring for people. Mm. I love that. I mean, that's a great legacy. You, you said love about 20 times in the past, like 30 seconds. <laughs> and that's, that's not, but that's not a bad thing. That's such a good thing, right? Yeah. To be known yeah. as someone who loves and was loved. I mean, that's it. Like take that yeah. into the afterlife, yeah. whatever that looks like. Yeah. And that's a really, really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie Engel Young, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for telling us more about Pencils of Promise. I'm so encouraged by the work that you all are doing at, at POP, but also your life. I mean, I've learned, you know, obviously we've touched things at a surface level, but I'm so grateful for you and your work. And um, thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you. You have your homework to go watch some jump rope and your wife needs to read The Astonishing Color of After. So those two things are, are on your family's checklist now. I will let you know when they are accomplished. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for being here, for spending time with Leslie and me. To learn more about Leslie, Pencils of Promise, and all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. If you're still listening, you're a real one, and I love you to pieces. As soon as this podcast is over, if you haven't already, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, 
or on whichever podcast app you use to listen to this show, it would mean the world to me and to my small little team. Thank you so much for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love y'all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.